prejudices. Everyone has them. No matter how much we say and try to embody the golden rule of doing unto others as we would have them do unto us, we love our neighbors in limited ways because we are all limited in our own ways. When someone says or does something other than what we would have said or done in a similar situation, harsh judgments, cruel criticisms, and unforgiving convictions can erupt seemingly out of nowhere. We think we're open-minded until we are the ones who feel threatened. It is then when our real perceptions of those who are not like us stand out. This has been our personal experience. What we've also discovered from our own readings and understandings is this. Often, the people who have felt the most marginalized in society are the ones who are consoling, compassionate, sensitive, loving, and welcoming. Perhaps they readily model these things because they so often fail to receive it from others. They know what is desperately needed. These are the opening uh, paragraphs. In a story uh, Tom and I wrote in our book, Someone to Tell It To, Moved With Compassion, it's called A Non-Judgmental Life. And we share that today because th this episode, this conversation is about non-judgment, especially of people who many consider different or who many just don't understand yeah so we're really excited to release this episode we're proud of this episode and in this conversation we have a dialogue about how every voice can be heard every voice can be expressed with max masseur they them max is an ethical ux user experience researcher dei which means diversity equity and inclusion consultant author and public speaker. Thanks to people such as Max, our culture is growing in the understanding that traditionally, not every voice has been heard or recognized, that too many have been marginalized or silenced. Our conversation is in recognition of this exclusion, and we are very grateful, Max, for sharing a more inclusive perspective with us. So we hope you enjoy this conversation Thanks for being with us today. What a privilege to welcome you to the Someone to Tell To podcast today. Thank you for having me. So, Max, one of our core values at Someone to Tell It To is that all of us have a voice, a voice that needs to be heard, the collective greater good, a phrase that we've found that you use often. We've invited you today to have a dialogue about how every voice can be heard Every voice can be expressed. Our culture is growing in the understanding that traditionally, not every voice has been heard or been allowed to be heard or recognized. You can help all of us today to grow an understanding of the way too many voices among us have been marginalized or silenced. So we, we'd like to start today with a pretty broad question. Uh, there's an interviewer that we appreciate through National Public Radio who once was asked how she gets her guests to kind of open up. And she said four simple words, tell me about yourself. Tell me about yourself. So with those four words in mind, would you, Max, tell us about yourself? 
We'd just love to hear what your journey through life has been like so far and what has led you to who you are today. Oh, that's a loaded question. <laughs> so many things. <laughs> uh, so I'm Max uh, Major, and I use uh, they, them pronouns. Um, uh, I, yeah, let's see. Um, the main thing that made me uh, who I am uh, was like four years ago when I came out as a trans person. Um, that's definitely like a, a second part of my life and uh, a better one. Um, I was born a girl. Uh, I was raised a girl. I lived my life as a, seen as a woman for 36 years. Um, and I had no clue, no clue that um, I was actually trans masculine and that I would have the life I live now. Like it's totally out of uh, what I ever imagined. Um, so um, the way I see life now is completely different. And one of the main things that made me change uh, is that when I was seen as a woman, the way people interacted with me was extremely different from how people interact with me now that I'm masculine presenting. Now I have like a full beard. I wear um, clothes that are like typical masculine some days, but I'm also like playing with my gender. So I have also pants with flowers uh, today, for example. Mm -hmm. um, but the way people interact with me uh, is extremely um, different. For example, I remember f like four or five months into transitioning as a masculine person. I was walking on the street at night and as usual, I was close to someone else to, because I didn't want to be attacked or something. And that person turned around and she, uh, she saw me, she grabbed her bag and she started to walk faster. And this is where everything hit me like, oh, I'm the creepy guy. I'm actually following someone at night being masculine presenting. And this person is scared of me. While just six months before that, I was still a woman presenting. And I was the one looking around, making sure nobody was following me. And there's the way I present was really making everyone else around me to interact differently with me. And that's, that was the beginning of a bigger journey into like deconstructing gender and masculinity. Um, so that's, that's the bigger part of me. Um, and uh, yeah, I think that's, that's said already like a lot into how I became uh, myself. Mm. You write about a day in, in, in 2016 where you, your body crashed down. And what, what you wrote was, I spent a week in the hospital and was unable to work for three months. This unwanted long pause allowed me to find my authentic self. My burnout saved my life. Would you please talk more about that? You know, what led to your burnout? And how did it save your life? Yeah, absolutely. So because of being under an identity that was not me, the identity that was put on me as being born um, as a girl, um, assigned female at birth, I, I live my life in way of being that was not me. So, so I was pretending. I was trying to fit 
a script fit a fit a mold of like um, someone that was great. Like when you look at pictures of me when I was woman presenting, and like I look good, I'm fine. It just internally there was something that was really not matching. Um, so I spent all my life trying to find a spot into how I was, how I was working, a way to feel um, proud, to feel like my work was valued. So I ended up being very um, into working a lot. Like really that was my way of um, numbing myself. So I was working 12 hours a day, working late at night, working on weekends. And I loved my job. I was working in startups. Um, and at that time I was, I was working in a startup doing uh, um, user user experience and user interface for video games uh, on iPhone, and I remember I loved it. It's just that I was never stopping. And um, in 2016, um, I had my baby uh, in 2014, so he was two, and so I was still in like the first two three years of having a new new baby and a new life and uh, a lot of things to do on top of working. And I still I was still working like too much. So um, it happened that one of the one day I had a fever and I continued to work and I worked for like maybe a week and still working, not stopping. And um, yeah, this is where I had to be hospitalized to understand what was going on. And they didn't find anything, like nothing. Really, I was not sick per se, but my body was just like um, completely exhausted to to the core. Um, and it took me, yeah, it took me three months of not working at all. And it was hard. It was very hard to like be forced to not work. I remember the first therapist I met um, was asking me how many uh, tasks do you have on your to-do list every day? And I was like, well, I have 25. <laughs> and he was like, and I was like, yeah, why? why? And they're like, okay, so how many, how many do you do per, per, per day? 26. <laughs> and I was really like, why? Like, why people don't do their like to-do list task every day? And um, he, he coached me for like three months to have five things on my to-do list. And that included personal stuff, like picking up my kid at, um, at the daycare. And that was hard because then I, a lot of uh, emotions and feelings were had space to to be present. So instead of working all the time, I had time to breathe and to see. And and so I had this burnout uh, the summer of 2016, and I came out as trans in March 2017. So like six, eight months later, uh, because I had the space. I, I literally had the space to focus on myself, listening to myself. Um, and that's why I say the burnout saved my life because he, my body, my mind just stopped everything. Like, no, Max, there's something you need to look at. Like, this cannot continue. You are so misaligned, that doesn't work. Um, and yeah, and that was the beginning of a very different life, different journey. Um, and I, I, I don't regret it. I, <laughs> I mean, I wish um, I had more visibility trans visibility before that. So I would have been able as a kid, as a young person, to be able to see myself in some other people. I grew up in France and France being trans was not something that was really well uh, spread, especially trans masculine person. 
um, and everything around gay, queer, trans were um, the source of jokes and not some way of being and uh, like affirming at all. So I didn't, ha- I had literally no awareness that trans masculine people existed until that burnout. Like that, that's, that was really that when I, I spent a lot of time in my recovery of the burnout on watching TV shows and um, I ended up watching queer TV shows and realizing, oh, what? There trans trans men exist, trans masculine people exist, non-binary people exist. And that's why my brain was like, yeah, yeah, continue, <laughs> continue, continue. <laughs> uh, until the day I realized, oh, okay, this person in the TV, this TV show is feeling exactly the way I feel. And that was like, that was the biggest uh, moment in my life when I, I, I wanted to see uh, another therapist to get an appointment with a therapist for the next morning. I was really not okay. I was really depressive. Um, and the night before going to the night before that meeting, I went to bed and I looked again at the profile of the, the therapist I picked, and I was like, "Oh, that's funny. This therapist is a trans person." And I was like, hmm, hmm, why would I pick a trans person to treat my depression? And this is where, like, going to bed, my eyes full open. I'm like, what? <laughs> I'm trans? And that's how, I, like, I started, like, answering the door of that therapist and the morning after, like, hey, well, I thought I was going to talk about this, but apparently... I have other stuff to talk about. I think I'm a trans person. You're like, mm-hmm. okay, welcome. Let's talk about that. Uh, yeah. <laughs> We'd like to talk about that a little bit further and, and how you were received by those in your immediate sphere of influence. Here at Someone to Tell To, we listen to a lot of people who feel as if they don't belong. What does it mean to belong and how can we change the culture wherever we are to create the space for everyone to belong? Uh, we found a quote that you, you've talked about belonging and you said that belonging is still seen as accepting different people. The more I embrace my own transness and queerness and the magic that it is, I see that belonging for me is not cis, white, straight people being okay with me sharing a desk with them. That is not belonging. Yeah, um, I'm still yeah I'm still with that quote and uh, I, for me I for a long time I thought it was like making um, educate people to make more room for trans people, but the more I do it the more I um, I go into my own um, healing and um, understanding more of the world. Uh, I do think it's just we need we need another another table and we are building it like the trans community, the queer community, the uh, black indigenous people of color, people with disabilities. We are all like building something that is centered around uh, underserved communities, trauma informed communities and ways of being that's um, yeah. For now, the way the world has been set up is centered around cisgender white and most like most most often uh, men, and everything is like oh let's make some room for someone else let's make some room for another concept but um, it's still about being centered around a norm that is uh, that is not inclusive and uh, so I think for me the belonging is like just 
um, you you don't have to belong. This is where, as far as I'm going now, you don't have to belong to a system that is not designed for you, that is not really caring for you. Um, and it's very it's scary. It's scary because we only knew that um, we only know that system. And um, but I and I, I took a, a leap of faith, uh, and I think COVID and 2020 helped me to do it. Um, I like. I've been I've been working in um, a few startups in 2020, and I always I'm always uh, vocal. I use my voice for underserved communities, trans, and also people of color, um, all type of underserved communities. And I've been received with uh, um, a big yes when people want to work with me. Yes, let's do it. But when it's actually me working with the team and supporting decisions that are ethical that are like going to make change in the way things have been, have been uh, happening, um, then that, that doesn't work anymore. Like it's yes to like, yeah, let's, let's do it because that's right. Then when it's like, well, that means when you decide to do this, you won't be able to do it the way you used to. That means you're going to have to have someone in your leadership that is a black person or you're gonna to have to hire a trans therapists if you're if if you're set up with doing therapy. That means you need to have therapists that are actually reflecting the people you want to serve. Like that's what's happening. It's not just yes, and then you don't follow with actions. Um, so all 2020, I had experiences like this where I was. Mm, if you don't feel like this, if you don't really want to follow ethical decisions, I don't think we're a match. And they were going to the same conclusion as well. So I, I didn't last long in those different experiences. And this is where I'm actually um, proud of myself for like making a point. Um, and I work um, currently, I work in a fellowship, the Blue Ridge Labs Fellowship, um, where this is what we do. We actually working for underserved communities. I've, I've done a research uh, for trans uh, black uh trans black folks uh, and I've been doing a research for sex workers and that's that's why I I joined this fellowship is to actually care for the people that are not served uh, or served not well right now and um, yeah from it uh, I don't see I don't see how the system capitalist system like startups which are funded by investors who are most likely wealthy cis white men i don't see that being able to be uh shifted i don't like uh, there's a lot of yes but where are the black folks uh in higher the, the queer folks the people with disabilities are like the one on the field sometimes but what i see there's need to be a change it's in, in the leadership those companies or startups should be mostly led by um, underserved communities. Um, and that's not the case. And we see how it's, it's going to be hard for people to give up some of their position and power for other folks to be in control. Um, and for me, this is where the change would happen. First, we want to say, uh, Max, we're really proud of you for that. Mm-hmm. For for. <laughs> trying to help those who are underserved to be served, to have a voice, to have a place at the table. We, we know it's been far, far too long. 
that so many people have been excluded and marginalized. And uh, we, we really appreciate that sentiment of yours is more than a sentiment that, 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 you know, that those values, those, you know, the life that you're trying to lead, um, because we know that it's needed very much. Thank you. You've you've also stated we, we we love quoting you because you've 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 written and said some really <laughs> some really important things and so there's here's another one you've stated that I see a crack that could happen if people in power realize that sharing your power doesn't make less power for you that that is powerful just in itself you go on to say there is a scarcity mentality for people in power that they hold on to that power as their only survival. They think that if I just give away my power, I won't be in power anymore. Like, yes, that is true. But you're still believing that capitalism is the only way to drive and assuming that being in power is the only way to be successful in life. As long as people hold on to that too tight... They're going to miss the boat. I want to see more black people in leadership, and not because a white person accepted them in leadership, but because they will be better leaders. And that's the end of your quote. It's powerful. So we ask you, um, why do you think there's been this lust for power? Where does it come from? And how do leaders not only become aware of it, but change that mindset? We know you're trying. So if, if please tell us how you see this change can take place. Um, why people are like attracted so much with, um, towards power. That's, uh, that comes back from like, I don't know, 500 years ago, <laughs> at least. Right. It's the, it's, I think it comes with money as well. It's like why money became money. And uh, I was talking with some of my fellows at the fellowship and we were, we're doing uh, one of the research we do this week is around uh, finances, money, and our conclusion to talking to like 20 people um, this week, uh, 10 or 30 people uh, this week was that the money is a tool of oppression. And capitalism is based out of the need for money for everything. And for people who are in power, it feels like they're safe. It feels like if you have money and you're in power, you're safe under a capitalism world. But if you remove money, are you safe? Like the community, when it's community-based, human-based, it's around connection. It's around human connections. And this is for me, the power is coming from human connections and not money. And we see that, we saw that last year with, with the pandemic. Uh, suddenly um, the connection with others became like uh, like a crucial need being all, all isolated in our homes. Um, we felt we missed connection with people. Um, and I do the best work myself when I work in collaboration with others, not when I'm like individualistic and building a lot of things on my own and just hoarding money. I'm not happy. I used to do that. Like, that's the thing I used to work in tech and just like building, 
um, I used to work uh, at very big financial institution and building stuff that was making me a lot of money. And I thought I was it. I thought I, I reached the level of uh, the success that I am um, society told me to be. And I ended up burning out. And um, I think that's where the power this is for me like the power over. It's like when you think that you have to be at the top and control a lot of things around you. Um, and losing that power can feel like like falling from, from the sky. What if I don't control anything? What if I don't control people? And um, the way I believe, and I'm not the only one believing this way, is to the people with, the p- power with. So power with means that it's like, we are collaborating, we are using our own resources and our values together as human beings, as a community, um, and we share. Like, I just, I, I st- like the billionaires should not exist. <laughs> like, billionaires make no sense when you have people who are like the people I, I, I serve during this fellowship, people who are like literally just trying to get food from um of the mutual aids and the fridge, the free fridge on the streets, all the stuff like billionaires should not exist. Um, that's like, even when I was a kid, there was no billionaires. There were millionaires, but now it's billionaires. Like it's, it doesn't make any sense to me. Um, and I saw that uh, the, the um, Imagine Dragons, the, the band, just the, the, the singer of Imagine Dragons just uh, donated his house, his childhood house for LGBTQ uh, youth. Like, this person has a lot of money, is successful for now as being a singer, and that's the mindset that I see, is like this person can doesn't have to give money or doesn't like, like it's it's a gesture that is making like impact and billionaires are so far connected from that notion of community and um, connection that, yeah, I, I still can't, I don't know what to say about more than that for billionaires because I'm always like, ah, it's, it brings me so much anger that the system that has been built 500 years ago leads, leads to that, to have people who are, over hoarding resources of all sorts. And then on the other side, people who are struggling for their, their basic needs. Um, yeah. One of the things that we like to do is we like to link our, our previous conversations with this one. And I know just a few weeks ago, we had a woman on just talking about friendships. And uh, we quoted an article from the Washington Post just about this concept of toxic mas- masculinity. And uh, we'd like to spend a few minutes with you talking about that. Over the past several years, toxic masculinity has become a catch-all explanation for male violence and sexism. The appeal of the term which distinguishes toxic traits such as aggression and self-entitlement from healthy masculinity has grown to the point where Gillette invoked it last month in a viral advertisement against bullying and sexual harassment. Do you remember seeing that commercial? No, but I remember Gillette doing uh, doing a video with a trans masculine person shaving with his dad. So mm. that I remember. So I'm not surprised they would do something like that. Yeah. So, 
so let's talk about this toxic masculinity. Uh, research have defined it in part as a set of behaviors and beliefs that include the following. Suppressing emotions or masking distress, maintaining an appearance of hardness, and violence as an indicator of power. This kind of tough guy behavior. So just what are some comments that you might have about toxic masculinity? Oh, my God. A lot. Um, <laughs> I remember when I came out and I started to be more masculine, I, for six months, I fell into the toxic masculinity because that's the one, the masculinity we see, that's the masculinity society is um, giving us examples. Um, so I, for, for me, I, um, for, like, so just to set up the context, before I... I was exploring femininity to the extreme. I was trying to find a spot where I would feel like myself. I was playing a role of high femininity. Um, so when I came out and I started to be more masculine, I explored the same way and I ended up being uh, very um, masculine in the way that I'm not now anymore. It's like using bro or dudes. Uh, I had gestures and way of being that was very like... Uh, um, to the like Al Pacino movies. Uh, I don't know. I was trying to mm. find ways, and um, a friend of mine called me out. I'm like, "What are you doing? Like, what? Are, like, who are you? What? Are, why are you playing that toxic masculinity?" And that's the only one I knew. That's the only one I knew, and that's what I knew as being masculine was. So I started to explore more, and like to uh, even me, who was who lived as a woman for 30, 36 years. I fell into it because there's also power. There's like um, the feeling of, I don't know, everything was easy. When you're, when you're seen as a white man, everything is easy. People stopped cutting, cutting me off when I was talking. When I, was, when I talk about a topic, people assume that I'm legit to talk about that. People just never uh, push back no challenge what I say because it's coming from me. This is easy. Like <laughs> you don't realize this is like for like coming from where I was when every time I sent an email, I had to argue multiple times for something like, um, so I kind of like, I took a break. I think that's what happened to me. Like oh, life is easy in that way. And even me, I fell into that luxury of privilege um, and then I caught myself thanks to one of my friends and um, I revised my copy. And then I re this is where I started to explore what is masculinity? What is mine? How do I want to express, my, express myself with both femininity and masculinity? Um, and I'm actually um, at South by Southwest this year. And we were picked last year, but they canceled South by Southwest last year. But this year we have, I have a panel where I'm actually talking about toxic masculinity and some of the stuff I shared with you uh, just today. Congratulations. Um, That's amazing. Yeah. And with two other, two other um, person and uh, one of my friend, Craig Foreman, who, who is the moderator for that panel. And we, um, yeah, we, I learned a so a lot of my masculinity and my femininity and the balance in between talking with other people, talking with queer folks, talking with um, people like even cis men who are into groups for men talking about healthy masculinity. Um, I read some uh, uh, some books, some 
watch documentaries that I ha- had to learn and explore masculinity to find my own, um, which, yeah, I, I didn't find that from my own uh, family. My family is coming always like angry men. Like, I was going to ask, you, ask yeah. you about that. I mean, like, where did that kind of construct come from? What you would have envisioned masculinity being? First, the society. Like, every, everything, the TV shows, the magazines, the politics, everywhere is like the, the white man is always uh, the powerful one. Um, that's what I've been fed with. And in my family, my, the men in my family, for generation, never, never, never express their emotions because they don't even know what they feel. Mm. Like, uh, um, and I talk about that with my with my parents uh, around emotions, and this is not something that was um, that was offered at all. It's what's the opposite. So I grew up with a father who is um, disconnected from emotions, especially when I was uh, younger, um, and going through life with uh, hard moments. When you don't connect with your own emotions, you end up having one main one which is anger uh, and everything is annoying and the way you react is out of anger and instead of compassion and care um, and I saw I saw situations with my grandfather as well who like I know every dinner every Christmas birthday every time that was like a fight the fight around the table and I grew up with that thinking that arguing with someone was the way to, to be and I had to learn on my own with other ways of being. And especially since I'm part of the queer community, that's where I learned a lot about consent and uh, consent in talking. Like, are you in the good mindset now to talk about this instead of bringing up a subject that might be too much for that person? Um, so I, this is completely different from how I grew up. Uh, and I had to find other uh, role models. Yeah, one of the things that we we love to do is is we love to make this point that uh, it's actually from from a writer who once said that don't ask yourself what the world needs, ask yourself what makes you come alive and go do that because what the world needs is people who have come alive. His name's Howard Thurman, and it sounds like in so many ways you've just found your sense of being and who you are, who you've been created to be. It uh, sounds like there's just a, a level of confidence there and connection and, and passion. Um, and we just really appreciate that about you. You know, it sounds in a lot of ways today, we're trying to make some connections that we're making this point that societies and cultures are missing out when there's not this sense of inclusion and diversity. Uh, we've heard it said that diversity is a fact. Equity is a choice. Inclusion is an action. Belonging is an outcome. Uh, would you agree with that statement? Uh, what do you think cultures are missing when they lack diversity? I would agree with that quote. I think it's a great beginning because for me, the end is um, it's missing one level, one level that is for me. Uh, liberation is the vision. And I think that um, belonging is not enough. Uh, belonging in a system that is not valuing you doesn't mean anything. Mm. Like, it really it's meaning removing stuff that you are to fit in. Um, and I, I have a lot of issue with that concept of like um, trying to fit in something that is not respected you. Um, so for me, the liberation is the vision is that every decision I make small or big 
is around um, liberation of trans folks, like liberation of black and um, indigenous people of color, liberation for people with disabilities, liberation of like um, even cisgender white men, mm-hmm. like liberation from that script that is forcing us to act in a certain way and not connecting with what we want to do and how we feel inside. Um, I have hope that um, working from home for most of people who have a job and who are in a position of privilege, that they might um, at least realize how separating their job self and their personal self is already a, um, a costume. It's already like a way of controlling themselves and controlling others. Um, and I, yeah, I hope I, when everyone start to be back to working outside, we're gonna see less suits, uh, like mm-hmm. very tie tie and suits, and more like relaxed clothes. I don't know, you know, like even that for me would be a hint of like, you know what? I work the same if I'm wearing a t-shirt or if I'm wearing a button-up shirt with a tie. And I want to be comfortable, so I'm going to wear a t-shirt today. Good for you. Um, <laughs> <laughs> and uh, yeah, and I don't know that, that that seems small, but I think for me that's the beginning of a liberation of like allowing our mind to not be forced to follow a script that doesn't resonate with who we are. Yeah. So, so you mentioned liberation. How do you know if you've achieved liberation? Well, liberation. Um, this is a thought that is like very, very sad and at the same time very hopeful. The way I, I've been reading a book called Healing uh, Healing, um, Healing is Resistance, something like that, I forgot. Um, and in that book, they, they explain that um, to end racism and all type of oppression, there's like a, a plan that exists on actions to do over time. And this plan, is, this roadmap is like 250 years long because it's not like, because racism has been created 500 years ago, you cannot remove it into one generation. It's like multiple generation doing the work to unlearn, unpack and work in a different way. So when I read that line in the book, I was like, wow, like, like, oh, like, I won't see it in my lifetime, hmm. uh, but, but at the same time, like, oh, wait, that means I don't have to do everything in my lifetime to make it achievable. I can just do my own, what I can do with enough time to rest in between. So I don't want to like just die from trying to do a liberation for all of all beings in just the next maybe 40 years, like I'm going to leave. But I, in the next 40 years, what can I do to act? to make my part of the job. So the next generation's going to also do their own part and like um, continue to move towards the liberation of uh, all beings. And um, the book I'm reading now is um, How We Get Free. And it's all it's a, a black feminist book. It's like if black, and I would add, if trans black women are free, that means we are all free. Because the trans black women are the they are the ones with the most intersectionality of um, oppression. So that's when we'll know. We'll know when black trans women are not killing, not not killing the street every week, and when they have actually like um, 
like a stable situation and housing and um, are not disrespected from uh, everyone. I think that's, that's going to be mine, sir, but I don't know when. <laughs> we love, we love that mindset. Just that with the allotted time that we all have here on this earth, we, how can we individually help move the needle forward uh, a few degrees? So yeah, thanks for that. That's, that's freeing for us, I think. Yeah, and I have, um, you know, I have a kid. So, um, and the, uh, I had my kid before I came out as a trans person. So I birthed and I gave birth to my kid. Um, and he has a knowledge of community and care and compassion that is beyond what I knew at, at his, uh, his age, for sure. It's beyond what my parents, the generation of my parents, have now like that's where I see my uh, my work also as like um, healing generations mm-hmm. of folks before me mm-hmm. um, and uh, this this little kid is six now mm-hmm. but it's like just the way he see and talk and um, I I know this kid will make his own like impact and if he ever has kids or have other people he will impact then more and more so 250 years is not a ton of generations what it is like five six generations that's doable like mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, it's just like to be intentional when we we decide when we make decisions and i think um going back to business and companies um five or six generation uh in terms of business means that what we decide now will impact other employees will impact other companies, and I am um, still disappointed of the decisions that are that are made. Um, and so I'm impatient, and I think that's something that um, is useful for me because being impatient and resilient at the same time means like I'll do the things um, and I'll, I'll push, continue to push forward. Um, and yeah, I'm I'm craving to see more companies where the CEO would like quit to make room for, let's say a trans black woman to become the leader of that company. That's, that's what I want to say. You talk about generations and we know that we can't, and you, you very realistically understand that as do we, that we can't, we can't affect all the change, you know, no matter what we do, we're not going to change everything for it to be the way we would like. But isn't our hope and our dream is that the the next generation will be able to do more than we could or will be able to live in a world that's better than we do. And the generation after that, and with each generation to come, you know, there's progress and things have changed. You know, what do you, what do you most celebrate over the last few years, particularly since since you've, you know, you, you've made the transition? Uh, what do you celebrate as the as the advancements, you know, for this generation that that you see and the, and you realize have are making this world a fairer, more inclusive uh, place, so that and where people are becoming less marginalized and being able to be who they have been created to be. Yeah, I like that. I like the phrasing you have, or like to be how you've been created. 
first of all, my, the celebration around me uh, are that I, I discovered that my superpower, I have two superpowers, <laughs> and one is like uh, being comfortable with discomfort. And that's that I, I, I learned that by being uh, trans and just, just, I've made the impossible possible. Like for my little self, when I was, uh, when I was seven and I knew something was not okay, something was wrong and I wanted to be a boy. I wanted to, like, I, I was waiting to become a boy. I made the impossible. I became who I thought was impossible to become. So starting by that, I think uh, trans folks are like I already have superpowers because of that. And my second superpower is that I um, I realize that I'm here uh, with my lifetime to wake up people. So this is the awareness waking up. So and since I've worked around that and I discovered that's where I have this is where I have tools. This is where I feel. Uh, rewarding when people are like realizing, oh, I didn't never saw this way. And I'm like, this is exactly why I needed to talk to you is for this moment. Um, everything I do is focusing on that. And sometimes I lose myself into other stuff and I recenter into like, oh, no, no, no. My goal is, is to wake up people. Me, I'm here to wake up people. Let's focus on that. So in that mindset, um, that's what I. That's why I, I want to celebrate with the past years, is more people being uh, awakened into diversity, into inclusion, uh, as little as, as they can in that moment. But for me, that means they can grow into other realizations. So I, I've done quite a lot of uh, inclusion workshops, especially trans inclusion, pronouns, gender uh, workshops. And every single workshop I've done, I had at least one person getting it. Oh, that's what it means. Oh, okay. And there's one way I show how I've been trans my whole life, but I didn't realize is like I, I, I share that if you use your uh, non-dominant hand, your left hand to write your name, it feels weird. It's feels slow, awkward. You have to think about it. It's feel off. But if you then use your dominant hand to write your name, it feels natural. You don't even think about it. It's like powerful and strong. This is how I felt my whole life. I felt my whole life like as if I was running with my non-dominant hand. Everything was off. Nothing was easy. Everything was difficult. And when I came out as a trans person, that's exactly how I felt. It's how you feel when you finally use your right, your, your dominant hand to write. Everything felt clear and easy and strong and powerful. And when I do that in the workshops, some people or even people like generation of my, my parents just realize, oh, I get it. And in my generation, people were forced to use the wrong hand. People who were lefty were forced to use their right hand. This is the same. And my mom was someone, he's someone who has been forced to use her right hand her whole life. And there's like a connection here into the oppression, the oppression and to not be who you truly are and being forced of not being trans if you are, the same as using the the, the, the right hand if you're um, lefty. That's And so I know that I impact people. So I'm, I'm continuing to impact people um, and I, now I also do workshops around inner power, which is a wider um, connection 
uh, with your own self and who you are. And one of the, my favorite workshops to do right now is the deep debunking imposter syndrome, because I think it's like this is the very like the very tip of the iceberg of so many things underlying. So if you're not sure and you don't trust, you can do something. There's a lot of layers of patriarchy. There's a lot of white supremacy in that. There's a lot of layers of other stuff. And I kind of talk a bit about that during the workshop, but that's not the goal. The goal is to go through exercises. So then you regain that power of like, oh no, I know what I'm doing. Oh, I actually forget because I'm, I'm scared because they saw that. Love the analogy about the, the dominant hand. One of my grandmothers was left-handed, and but she was always smacked when she used her, her left yeah. hand. And she had to learn um, to write with her right hand because that's what the culture said was better. And uh, you know, I remember that. Uh, and so, yeah, that's a great analogy. So thank you. Yeah, my mom, my mom has the same experience. My mom was smacked too. It was like a ruler when yeah, she was not yeah. using the... Uh, yeah, that's terrible. Eh? That was just one generation for my case. So it's not so far long ago. Hi, I'm Sharon. And I'm Pensy. We are volunteers at Wonders Found Thrift Shop and proud sponsors of the Someone to Tell It To podcasts. Wonders Found is a totally volunteer-run thrift shop begun to support our mission team as they rebuild homes in disaster areas. We also support local missions and people experiencing homelessness, veterans, and children and youth outreaches. We provide clothing and household items to families displaced by fire or flood. You can learn more at our website, mountcalvaryumc.org backslash wonders found or stop in to see what wonders you will find at 7810 Allentown Boulevard. God bless. Max, we just have one more question for you. Our time's kind of running out. we as an organization pride ourselves on listening and and doing our best to listen well to individuals to groups to organizations and also to teach and model listening um particularly in the the workplace uh for for leaders how have you seen listening helping leaders through this process of ensuring diversity equity inclusion belonging and you had mentioned liberation yeah. Oh, wow. Listening, I think, is, is that's very interesting because I agree with you. Listening is so, so important. And I think listening and believing, um, and that's something I, um, I see it's still like hard. Uh, I, we need like maybe two, three more hours of podcast to go through that. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, the believing is like, um, listen and believe, I think would be the, the like a good first, first step of anything, because when you see um, the Me Too movement, um, there was a lot of uh, people who were not believing what those people, those women, mostly women, were saying. And I can tell you, like, when I was a woman presenting and I was walking on the street, I was, um, especially when I was living in France, in Paris, in Paris is like 10 times worse than in New York, um, Whatever I was wearing, <clears throat> whatever I was, however I was presenting, if I was presenting like I was as a woman, I was like harassed 
every time I was out and more than one time. Like I was like all the time and like being annoyed and being like, uh, and those men using uh, very vulgar uh, terms to talk to me. Um, and when I was with a, a friend who was masculine presenting, nothing would happen because there was this, this, um, uh, no, like this um, um, way of the man is owning the woman. So another man will not dare to comment on the woman at that time when they are together. But this is hard because I know firsthand that exists. And, but now that I don't, I don't receive any street harassment ever again. Like I forget, I totally forget how it was. I know it exists, but even me who was in those shoes, um, it's easy to forget. It's easy to forget how uncomfortable it is, but it is, it is really using, it used to use like 50% of my brain every time I had to dress up just to think, oh, wait, tonight I'll finish work late. So no, I should not wear this pair of shoes because they're going to make some noise on the street work, on the, on the, on the street when I'm going to work. Like everything is thought like, oh no, this t-shirt shows like too much or like this skirt is too, like, oh no, I don't want to do that. Oh, maybe I could get my sneakers in my bag to make sure I can run fast if someone is in the street with me. Like all of that is street harassment. All of that is is coming from men who are like thinking that they own every woman that they can see in the street. And um, I, I know that because I, I, I used to be the victim of that. And when I talked, I talked with some people and they were like, oh, that's okay. They, they have to accept that it's flirting, it's fine, it's a compliment. And I, it's not. It, it is um, extremely stress, stressful. It is anxiety producing. It is uh, a lack of safety. You will make decision um, out of that criteria instead of going to a meeting late at night, uh, even just finishing work too late. You you might you change your career because of street harassment. That's what I would like. The way you. You are afraid of what's what could happen um, if, like, your boss wants to talk to you later at night. You are absolutely worried of what would happen if you are alone with that person, and you might just say, "No, no, I'm fine." So, but it would be fine for another man to be having a drink with the boss, and that's how they get a promotion by talking with the boss. There are so many layers of. Um, in that discussion that I think um, the just listening and believing like yeah believe what people say believe what someone said that they hurt that they are like struggling that they are like uh, we have to believe them we have to believe what's what's coming out of especially underserved community folks yeah Max uh, what a what a joy what a privilege to be able to have this conversation with you today. Uh, we could go on for another three hours. Uh, there's just so much to talk about, so much to say. So we thank you. We thank you for the time you've been able to give us today. We thank you for your openness and your willingness to, to serve those who are not heard, those who are not at the table, those who are not listened to nor believed. Mm-hmm. And we... That's 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 part of, very much part of the values that we have here at Someone to Tell It To, too, to give people a voice, 
and to help them to be them again themselves, who they've been created to be. So thank you. Uh, we feel a synergy with you on that, those values, and we appreciate them so much. So we are glad that you could be with us today. Oh, I'm glad too. Um, you're right. I'm glad too. <laughs> Thank you. Keep, keep going. Thank you so much. Thanks, Max. Once again, we thank Max for being with us and for sharing their, their story about what life has been like and about what they are trying to do to help others feel included, not marginalized anymore. We're also uh, proud that uh, uh, with just a few days before this episode uh, went live, um, here in the United States, the highest ranking transgender person in the country was uh, voted on and sworn in as the Assistant Secretary for Health in the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services in Washington, D.C. That was Dr. Rachel Levine. And Dr. Levine is from Pennsylvania and literally from my hometown in Hershey. And uh, we have been in the presence of Dr. Levine uh, previously. And we um, certainly respect her, her life and her work. And we are proud that um, Pennsylvania, where we're from, could... Um, could have someone from our state uh, be in such uh, an important, important and, and respected position. So we want to end our time together in this way. Michael, in the introduction, had read a portion of a story from our second book, Someone to Tell to Moved with Compassion, called A Non-Judgmental Life. And I'm going to close this out today by reading another segment of the same story. So we raised the question, what compels us to define others and ourselves by often narrow parameters, putting one another into categories based on our jobs, looks, sexual orientation, religion, or race? Is it because it's easier to label, to define others with stereotypes? Is it because going beneath the surface may take us to uncomfortable places? Is it because going deeper into the core of our own or someone's being may threaten our cherished beliefs or challenge our expectations. We simply wanted to launch this episode as another opportunity for us to be more inclusive, to listen to those voices who maybe haven't been heard for far, far too long. And so we're really proud of how this conversation turned out. We hope you enjoyed it. We hope that you learned something new and maybe you just, uh, like us, became more educated on the subject matter. Uh, it's an important one, especially in the, the times that we're in right now. So again, thank you for being with us today. We hope that you've enjoyed this episode and learned something important from it. And uh, we look forward to you joining us when we listen again.